I knew it was going to be a great morning. Saw a kid in a Dallas Cowboys jersey. (laughs) All right, so take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter number 1. Luke chapter number 1. Many of you know I I spent 15 years in youth ministry and loved it. I, I love youth ministry. And the bulk of it I spent in in Memphis, and part of my strategy as a youth pastor was to recruit as many kids as possible to go to camp, and uh, there is an advantage to the the whole group of teenagers going to camp, and I'll I'll tell you, well, I'll just go ahead and say it like this, that when they are at camp, they are divorced from all their devices and all the friends that are not the greatest influence on them, and they're saturated in the Word of God and solid preaching. When they come back, there is a a fire in their gut that they didn't have before. And some people will say, yeah, well, they make camp decisions or whatever. And and I don't buy it. And the reason I don't buy it is for this reason. They, They spent all their time in the Word of God that week. You know, they did fun things, but there was a high concentration of God's Word, and it's kind of like vacation. When you go on vacation, let's say you go to Florida or something like that, you come back with a tan, nobody looks at you and says, oh, well, that's just a vacation tan, right? That's a tan. That was exposure to the sun. You got to tan. The same thing is true about, about camp. And so I, I would, uh, con- our whole year was, was focused around that week at camp, the way that I worked it. And um, the Lord blessed, I think, working strategically like that but one of the dimensions of being the youth pastor we we went to this camp and it was in North Carolina awesome camp one of the most awesome camps I've ever seen in my life and we went there three years in a row and I'm one of those guys I like a little bit of variety and so we had huge numbers of kids going to camp the next year I said okay we're going to go to camp in northern Wisconsin actually that camp was about 35 miles from where I was a pastor uh, before I came here but anyway um, and it, it, was, it was a really great camp. The problem was I had half the number of kids go to that camp that I had go to the first camp. When we got done with the week, those kids told me, that was the greatest camp I've ever been to in my life. And, and we're just so much better than the camp in North Carolina. Well, the following year, I said, we're going to go to Colorado. The campsite was amazing. It was 9,000 feet above sea level on a, the largest natural lake in Colorado. It was, it was an incredible location. Again, low numbers. We get out there. Same kids tell me, man, this is the greatest camp ever. It's way better than North Carolina. It's way better than Wisconsin. I finally looked at them and said, you rascals. I said, you realize every place we go, that's your favorite camp? Well, I say that to say, that in my ministry, I've, I preached through Matthew back in 2006 and 7, and that was my favorite gospel. And then, right before I moved to Providence Bible Church, I was preaching through John, got through chapter number 18, and John was my favorite gospel. And now we're beginning Luke. I fully intend for Luke to become my favorite gospel before this is over with. And so, and I hope that it's your favorite too by the time we get done with Luke. If you'll stand with me, we'll read the introduction to uh, Luke's gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, 
just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Now let me just pause right there. What he's saying is that many people have given eyewitness testimony to what Jesus did. And some have even compiled a narrative. Part of those some most likely was Mark. John Mark had already compiled a narrative. Could you go to the next slide? It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Next slide. That you may have certainty concerning the things which you have been taught. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the gospel and the, 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 the portrait that it paints of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we embark on Luke, that we will be blessed, that we will know our God, that we will be more confident in our God, that we will be more faithful to our God, that we will put off sin and put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we will be thankful for who Christ is and what he's done and we'll see all the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So as I said, we're, we're embarking on a study of, of the Gospel of Luke. And I'm, I'm excited to study Luke uh, because to, to quote Jesus' words from another Gospel, the Gospel of John, listen to what Jesus said. I want you to think about this. Whoever has seen me has seen the, okay. So that's why we're going to study Luke. It's exciting to view Jesus and know that when you see Jesus, you're seeing the Father. Hebrews 1, 3 says, he, listen to this, is the radiance of the glory of God. And then he says, the exact imprint of his nature. You want to know what God is like. Look to Jesus Christ in the Gospels. Look to Jesus Christ in the Epistles. Look to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Look to Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation as well. All the books, they, they expound who Jesus is, but a concentrated dose of the explanation of who Jesus is and who God is, by, by extension, is found in the Gospels. It's to our advantage to study the earthly ministry of Christ because we learn about the glory of God. So, so who was Luke? Who was Luke? Well, Luke was not an apostle. He was not an eyewitness of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. He was a Gentile, a Gentile, probably Greek. And Colossians 4.14 tells us that he was a physician, and he had a physician's eye. Luke was very scholarly. His, he, he, his, the way he wrote and the things that he noted attest to his education. The, the introduction, these first four verses that we just read, did you know in the original, those are in classic Greek, high Greek form. Then chapters 2 and 3, the birth narratives are very Jewish in their flavor, in the way the, the, it's written. It's, it's a very Jewish portion. Then the rest of the book, from chapter 4 on, it, it is a Koine Greek. You know what Koine Greek is? That's the common Greek, the 
common Greek of the everyday people. So Luke was a very intelligent, very scholarly person. Um, he, he wrote, uh, the, the, he had the largest vocabulary of, of any of the, the, the gospel writers. There are more, if you want to learn your Greek vocabulary, read Luke, because you're going to learn a lot of it in Luke, because he, he had the highest vocabulary. He also wrote more of the, um, of the New Testament than any other person. Luke Acts is more content than all of the writings of Paul put together. Did you know that? Luke Acts is. Now, in one long sentence, he tells us what kind of a book he wanted to write. He tells us that he wanted to write one that would help people become more certain of their salvation in Christ. And to accomplish this goal, he was going to write a, an historically accurate, carefully researched, and well-organized gospel. That's his point. And when you read Luke, you see all of that in his gospel. You see all of that. And, and furthermore, look at the first word. Who on earth starts their letter out with inasmuch? How many did that this week? I wrote an email and it started with inasmuch. Luke was a very scholarly person. As a matter of fact, inasmuch is the first word in several histories written by several classical Greek scholars, which I'm not going to go into because nobody here cares. But since he was Greek, it makes sense that his gospel presents Jesus as the Savior of the world. This is how he presents Jesus. Jesus is the Savior of the world. It's a gospel for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Now contrast that with Matthew, and Matthew presents Jesus as what? The Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. It's super Jewish in the way that it presents Jesus Christ. The gospels each paint a wonderful picture of Jesus in the style of the author. So for example, Mark was a storyteller. John was a philosopher, and if there's any way that we could describe Luke, it would be the investigative reporter. Luke was definitely the reporter. With the doctor's gift of observation, Luke noticed things that nobody else did. Did you know that? Here's some of the unique things that Luke noticed in his gospel. First of all, the infancy narrative of Jesus Christ. In all likelihood, he, he knows this because he interviewed their mothers of Mary and Elizabeth. Most likely he interviewed those two. Um, he, it was from Luke that we learned the Christmas carols of, of Mary and Zechariah and Simeon and the angel chorus in heaven. That's, that's where we learn these things. It's, it's Luke alone that we read the parables of the, the Good Samaritan and the, um, the prodigal son, the Pharisee, and the publican, and all these, all these. Only Luke tells us that when Jesus preached on the road to Emmaus, exactly what he preached. And only Luke gives us a fuller portrait of the women who followed Jesus, women such as Elizabeth, and Mary, and Anna, and Mary and Martha, the two sisters. Luke was the one who really paints the portraits of of who these people were like. And so Luke has a lot of unique material and unique way of presenting people. But 
Some people say, well, okay, there's four different Gospels, and they're all written differently, and they contradict each other. They don't contradict each other. If you understand why the author wrote what he did, you'll find out that these Gospels don't contradict each other at all. But what is interesting is that each Gospel has its own unique flavor. And I don't know how familiar you are with the Gospels, but when I think of a Gospel, when I think of the Gospel of Matthew, or I think of the Gospel of Mark, you want know to think of when I think of Mark, by the way? One word. Immediately. That's his transitional term. He uses that all the time. And it doesn't exactly mean uh, immediately as in bam, bam, things happen. That's his transitional term. Immediately. And you know that Mark got his information from Peter. And if you know anything about Peter, right? Peter's a man of action. So you can see why. You could just see Peter telling the story. And bam, immediately. This, and, and so you, you catch the different pictures and dynamics of the Gospels. But what we need to remember, and this is important, is that each gospel in Luke itself was written under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what John MacArthur had to say about this fact. He said, Luke's acknowledgement that he compiled his account from various extant sources does not invalidate the claim of divine inspiration for his work. All right? The process of inspiration never bypasses or overrides the personalities, vocabularies, and styles of the human authors. Let me pause there. What MacArthur's saying is what the, the, the Reformation teaching and Bible teaching on, in, on inspiration is, and that is that each author, their personalities and their vocabularies come out, and the style of the writing comes out, but it is the Holy Spirit that writes it. MacArthur goes on to say, the unique traits of the human authors are always indelibly stamped upon the book of Scripture. Luke's research creates no exception to this rule. The research itself was orchestrated by divine providence. Now, that's a whole mouthful that he said about, about inspiration. Let me sum it up for you, what we teach about the doctrine of inspiration. You ready? Luke was the one who did the research and writing, but God was the one who gave us the gospel. And so the work that Luke did was under the sovereign control of God's Spirit so that the gospel that he wrote was the very word of God. And like, and so, but it was also the very words of Luke. Luke wasn't sitting there saying, okay, now what's the next word? Did you say this or that, Lord? He didn't do that. Luke sat down. He compiled it. The Holy Spirit was what we use the term superintending. Luke was, the Holy Spirit was superintending everything that he wrote. And everything that he wrote was his words, but it was exactly what God wanted him to say. And it was, so then it becomes not merely a human book about God, but rather a divine book about humanity. So that's, that's a little bit about the doctrine of inspiration. Now there's one more thing I want to point out about this introduction. Look at, the, look at what we said. We read in verses 3 and 4, particularly the end of verse number 3. He says, um, To write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. How'd you, anybody name a kid Theophilus, by the way? All right, what is that? Theophilus is a word, Greek word that means lover of God. So most likely, 
Theophilus was Greek. He's a Gentile for sure. But because Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus, it's almost 100% unanimous that Theophilus was some sort of Roman official. We know this because in other places in Scripture, Roman officials were called most excellent. Most excellent. And, um, of course, that reminds me of a movie from the 90s, but that's a different, or 80s, 80s, I think. But uh, most excellent Theophilus, he was a Roman official. Just a quick note uh, about the, I'll say there is one contrasting opinion. I I don't go with this opinion, but it it is out there. And that is that Theophilus is a code word for the church. That he was actually writing to Gentile churches because, by definition, shouldn't we all be lovers of God? Yeah, but that's a minority opinion, and uh, I, I think I go with the majority opinion here. Just a quick note about the canon, the New Testament, uh, th- about the, the actual structure. A lot of commentaries that you will read talk about Luke-Acts. Why do they do that? Because Acts is literally a continuation of Luke. Did you know that? It's literally a continuation. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Um, Luke ends with the ascension. Luke says they went almost all the way to Bethany. If you've been over to Israel, you know where Bethany is. They went almost to Bethany. Jesus went up, and then the Bible says that they came back into Jerusalem. Uh, Luke says that. Now look at Acts chapter 1. And look at how it continues. Acts chapter 1. Is anybody turning there? Everybody's looking at me. Look at Acts. I don't have it on the screen. So that's why I'm telling you, go, look, go there. You're waiting for the screen change, aren't you? I tricked you. <laughs> Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Now, I'll say this. Most likely, Luke was the, the length it is because that's the length of a scroll. Now, verse number two. Then he says, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so Acts now is a continuation. And he summarizes the end of Luke in the first few verses of Acts, and then he moves on to new material. And so I would, I've done this several times. I would challenge you sometime when you read through Luke, skip John and go straight to Acts, and you'll get part one and part two of the same author's writing. You get a flavor of it. And one of the fascinating things about Acts, if you do go there, is you'll be able to tell when Luke was with Paul and when he wasn't. Do you know how? Because part of the time in Acts, He'll use the word we, and part of the time in Acts, he'll use the word they. And you can tell when Luke was with Paul and when he wasn't with Paul. When he's saying, I saw this, uh, well, Paul was telling me this is what happened at the other time. And so you see that flip-flop, the we and the they. Read Acts sometime and, and note that. It's really, it's really uh, a cool thing. So anyway, enough about that. So we got this orderly account. But how did he order the account? Is there an order to the book of uh, Luke? And there, there most definitely is. And I, I want to go through the structure because this is important for our, our understanding of where we're going with this. He, he says in Luke chapter 1, 
in the first uh, verses there that he wants to write an orderly account. And so Luke's gospel can be broken into four major sections, and there's a major turning point right in the middle. I'm going to show that to you in just a minute. There are four major sections and a major turning point. Um, first of all, the first section is Jesus' birth and preparation for ministry. That's the first four chapters. Everything in Luke 1 and 2 points to the superiority of Jesus, doesn't it? The angels and the shepherds and, and the, 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 the officials and everything. He was born of humble circumstances. And yet, when you see the first two chapters of Luke, all the figures that surround his birth are very pious people. They're very hopeful of the kingdom of God. And so you, Jesus is superior because he is the one who fulfills the, this hope of the kingdom of God. Even his own, in his own self-awareness, you see it in, in Jesus' own self-awareness in Acts, or Acts. I'm going to keep saying Acts. I know I am. Luke 2.41. This shows that he must be about his father's work. You remember that story? They, they're in a caravan. They take off from Jerusalem. Then they find out Jesus isn't with. They go back, and Jesus, they find him in a temple. And it's kind of like, Mom and Dad, where else did you, would you think I'd be? I'd be right here in the temple because I need to be about my father's business. Chapters 3 to 4, verse number 13, we see his ministry preparation, his anointing by God. In chapter 3, John and Jesus are side by side. John is the one who goes before and Jesus is the one who comes. Very fascinating dynamic there. The genealogy in chapter 3. You know what it does? It's different from the genealogy in Matthew. You're thinking to yourself, oh brother, he's going to go over the genealogies? I am. Because the genealogy in Luke shows that, that Jesus has a relationship to all humanity because it says he's son of Adam Son of God. Well, Matthew doesn't take the genealogy back that far, only back to David, right? So his first actions you find in these first four chapters are to overcome temptations from Satan, the things that Adam failed to do. Remember, the genealogy goes back to Adam. Now, Matthew also portrays it the same way, but Matthew shows that Jesus succeeded in the wilderness, whereas Israel failed in the wilderness. Two different emphases going on in these two Gospels. It's very fascinating. The second section is his Galilean ministry. That's chapter 4, 14 to 9, 50. In this section, if you, wanna, if you just remember loosely, chapters 4 to 9 concentrate on the miracles of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus in Galilee. It's a Galilean ministry. His teaching includes... His declaration of the fulfillment of God's promise as well as his sermon on the plain is in, in that part. The, this section answers the question. You want to know what this section answers? Who is Jesus? Chapters 4 to 9 in Luke answers the question, who is Jesus? Luke paints a picture also of, of Jesus' rising popularity. The guy can't catch a break. He can't get any kind of rest. People are following him not only from Galilee, but from Judea and over into the, um, I'll think of it, uh, I lost it, 
and all the way up into Tyre and Sidon area. I can't believe I, um, that is going to just totally. What is the Latin word for 10? Decapolis, thank you very much. The 10 cities, the Roman cities of Decapolis. Uh, I can't believe I forgot that. But anyway, he's got, he's got this rising fame. And at the same time when you read this section, there's growing opposition for the religious leaders. All at the same time. These two things are going side by side. But there are also in this section four major, major controversies that come back in the narrative at the end of the book of Luke. But here are the four major controversies in, in, in the Galilean ministry. Number one, the type of company he keeps. This man, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. He eats with IRS agents and prostitutes, basically, is what, what they, they claim. The Sabbath. Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. How dare you heal somebody on the Sabbath? That's work. How dare you eat grain from the field on the Sabbath? And all these certain things. And he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, doesn't he? His authority. What, uh, what gives you the authority to do the things you're doing? And his mission statement. He, he's very clear about what, my, what his mission is. So that, that's the Galilean ministry. Now we come to the major break. Major break is in 951, and this is the journey to Jerusalem. 951 to 1944 is that journey. What is the major break you're talking about, Pastor? Well, if you look at verse number 51, it says this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. There it is. So he's been ministering the Galilean ministry now it's not strictly Galilee it's he he slips down into Judea every now and then but mainly in Galilee and finally he set his face after the after the transfiguration he set his face to go to Jerusalem and that's what he does Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem and let me tell you this one of the commentators said this, i got to say this, it literally is the most important journey in the history of the world. Isn't it? Most important journey in the history of the world. Jesus was going up to the city, up to the temple, up to the cross to die. And in this section, we see a high concentration of parables. 17 of them to be exact. 17 parables in this section of Luke. Of those 17, 11 of them are unique to Luke. Unique parables in Luke. The journey is not a chronological journey as much as the thrust of this section is to show people there's a new way to follow God, and that is through Jesus Christ. Well, let me give you the last section. The last section is the, the end of Luke, and that is Jerusalem. Everything that happened in Jerusalem from the triumphal entry uh, the innocent one is slain and raised. In this section, what does Jesus do in this section that's so important? If you don't know that, stay after. We need to have a little Sunday school class, right? In this section, it's the climax. Jesus secures salvation. Luke explains how Jesus dies, why apparent defeat has become victory, 
and how God revealed who Jesus was. And also, the parables that Jesus told highlight the Jewish rejection of their Messiah. There's a sub-theme of, of Luke that I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on here other than to mention it. A sub-theme in the book of Luke is the rejection of Israel, of their Messiah, and the rejection of God to Israel. That's a whole sub-theme that runs through this book. And a rejection will cost Israel dearly. Because now the kingdom will go to some new tenants. Remember the parable of the tenants? He's going to cast those tenants out. And he's going to bring in some new tenants. Israel's the one he's casting out. And he's going to bring new tenants called the church. And the reason for that is found in Jesus' quote of Psalm 110, where he says, For David says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then Luke closes with three scenes of resurrection and vindication of everything that Jesus did. What are those three scenes? Number one, the announcement of the empty tomb. Number two, the road to Emmaus and how that the Old Testament is key in teaching them who Jesus was. And then number three, the final commission final commission before he was ascended that's how luke ends each gospel is different and the four gospels work together to give us a 3d multicolor picture of our savior and for his part luke brings details together to emphasize some very important themes i want to give you four themes real fast and then we're going to be done believe it or not you don't believe that i know but it, it's going to happen okay what are these four themes? Number one, the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God. Luke mentions the word kingdom 40 times. 31 of those times, he says kingdom of God. The kingdom is very important. It occurs in the birth narratives right away. In the, it's the main theme of Jesus and the disciples preaching. The kingdom is the inheritance of the righteous. The most important petition in the prayer that Jesus taught was hope for the, the future believer, right? It's the most important. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Um, the kingdom is so important. And if you keep going over into Acts, this theme plays an important role. At times even, salvation is portrayed as entering the kingdom. Another verse that's not on your screen, turn to Luke 4, 43. Luke 4 and verse number 43. Luke 4 and verse number 43. According to Luke, salvation is part of it. And according to Luke, the kingdom has come. He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. The good news of the kingdom of God. The good news that God's salvation is secure. The good news that the kingdom is now here. The kingdom of God is here right now. Praise be to God, isn't it? We are not citizens of this present world. We are citizens of the heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of God. A second theme that runs through Luke is Jesus' care for women. Even though Jesus 
gave much time discipling men, Luke shows that Jesus' great concern is for women as well. Right away, the emphasis narrative and the stories of his youth emphasize the women, doesn't it? He talks about how joyful they were, how humble they were, how pious they were, how confident they were in God. It's, it's, they, Mary and Elizabeth, both pregnant, celebrate together the wondrous work of God in fulfilling His promise in their lives. It's hard to miss the fact that Elizabeth, you remember Elizabeth, right? The mother of John the Baptist. She displayed more faith in her husband who was a priest. If you remember the narrative, her husband, the priest, went into the temple. It was the, he, he got the, uh, he, the lot was cast. He got the lot. He got to go in, offer the offering. The angel stood before him, and she displayed more faith than he did. As a result, he became mute. And I also think that he was probably deaf because of some of the things that are said later on in the narrative. But it's hard to miss the fact that she displayed more faith in her husband. When Christ is dedicated, you have a prophetess whose name is what? Anna. And so there's this, this emphasis right off the bat on, on the role of women. In chapter 7, his heart goes out to the widow who lost her son. And so he raises her son from the dead, right? Later in that chapter, there's a woman who lived a sinful life, who came and washed Jesus' feet with her tears and anointed his feet with perfume, costly perfume. Chapter 8 is very interesting. Turn to chapter 8. Look at how it begins. Chapter 8. I like to hear the pages of the Bibles turning. I said that this morning in Sunday school. Uh, phones are great. But I don't know if you're checking Facebook or if you're actually looking at Scripture. <laughs> Chapter 8, verse number 2. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Look at the number of women here. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Hutza, Herod's household manager. Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And so... There were many women who were following Jesus, supporting the, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. He had compassion on the crippled woman, the woman with the issue of blood in chapter number 13. While all the disciples abandoned him at his crucifixion, who stayed? The women stayed and mourned for him. And who were the first witnesses to the resurrection? The women. And so the Bible does not show women having a secondary role at all. As a matter of fact, Scripture, I'll, I'll say this, and this is not the time to, to go into this to, in depth. The Bible was countercultural for its treatment of women. Christianity was countercultural in its treatment of women. You read the Greeks. I'm, I'm going to get a little bit graphic here, but in the Greek culture of Asia Minor, Macedonia, men reserve their love. This is no lie. High-class men reserve their love for a homosexual love. And their marriage, their wife, was only there to procreate with. 
I'm not kidding you. That is abundantly taught throughout those times. It's abundantly attested to nowadays. That is not true with the Bible, is it? Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for. That is countercultural in the day. Women did not have any kind of secondary role. It's just like anything else. Have you ever been to a, a, some sort of event where there's all chiefs and no Indians? Right? Well, somebody, somebody, has, to be, somebody has to give account. For example, here at the church, we, whenever there's something going on in the church, there is somebody who's the in-charge person, the, the one person that we go to if, if something needs to be known about something going on. You see what I'm saying? If, you're, if you have something going on in the gym, okay, the next event after this is this, so make sure that when you're finished with the gym, this is what happens. Well, the same thing is true the way God said it. Men and women are of equal value and importance and equally in God's image according to Scripture but somebody's got to answer to God, and in the way God set it up, it's the men. And they answer to God for their leadership. And that's just the way it is. And it's not, it's not a tear thing at all. They're equal under God. This guy just happens to have to answer to everything that goes on in the household. Right? So anyway, Luke continues to show the special place of women if you read uh, Acts is all through Acts as well. Women are mentioned by name over and over and over in Acts. Let me give you another theme, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the central figure in the story of redemption in Luke. The Spirit was active in Jesus' conception and birth, wasn't he? Right away, the Holy Spirit's mentioned in his conception and birth. He was present, the Holy Spirit was present at Jesus' baptism. He empowered Jesus for ministry. In fact, I've said this before. I'm going to say it one more time. Jesus is our model for ministry. Do you know that Jesus did his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit? He's our model. Did Jesus have the power to do all the ministry in and of himself? Yes. But because he's our perfect example... He did the ministry through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is very clear about that. He performed ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to show you something that I think is, is, is um, really fascinating. I was reading this back in probably June or July, and it just really struck me. And I'm going to include it in here just because I think it's really cool. Turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We'll look at verse number 17 in just a moment. So let's set up for this. Jesus sends out the 72 in the power of his name. They go out and they do all kinds of things. They come in and they're rejoicing. Look at what they rejoice about. Verse number 17, the 72 return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in our name. And look at Jesus' response in verse number 21. He responds by rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought about rejoicing in the Holy Spirit? Jesus did. Now, the Holy Spirit's role is to magnify Christ, but we can still rejoice in the work of the Holy Spirit 
as Jesus did. So Jesus is basically saying here that when these 72 went out, when the demons were cast out, when the miracles are done, all of those things were done by which person of Trinity? The Holy Spirit. I mean, they all did it because they're all God, but the Holy Spirit. You understand? You better not because that's a Trinity and nobody actually understands the Trinity completely. But it's, let me apply it this way. The Holy Spirit's presence is the single most distinctive mark of a Christian, isn't it? The Spirit is the gift of the Father through the Son. The Spirit is the gift of the Father through the Son. And that brings us to another important theme. And that's the last thing that we're going to cover. And that is this. How is this power enacted? How is the power of the Holy Spirit enacted? Answer, prayer. No one prayed more than Jesus. I want you to think about that for just a minute. Did Jesus really need to pray? Of course he did. But he needed to pray for a different reason than you think. Jesus' prayer was communion with God, the other part of the Trinity, right? It's hard for us to wrap our mind around the fact that Jesus was all God and all man, all at the same time, but he was. And the human part of him wanted to get involved in the divine part of him, the communion with God. And so no one prayed more than Jesus. He began his ministry by going into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to pray, didn't he? He often withdrew to a desolate place to pray. And at every major transition of, of his ministry, he spent an extended time in prayer, choosing the disciples after the feeding of the 5,000, the transfiguration before his crucifixion. His prayer life was so remarkable that the disciples asked him, can you teach us to pray? And so he did. He taught. Think about the things that he taught. He taught that prayer must be accompanied by faith, didn't he? And contrary to popular teaching of the prosperity gospel preachers, it doesn't matter the amount of faith. Pro, pro, you know prosperity gospel preachers are false when they start telling you the reason that your prayer was not answered is because you didn't have enough faith. That's the complete opposite of what Jesus taught. Jesus taught that if you have the prayer the size of a mustard seed, your prayer will be answered because the, the success is not in the amount of faith, but in the object of the faith, right? Jesus taught that we should not be weary and faint in prayer. He taught that God delights in our prayer. He taught us to pray that we enter not into temptation. You ever wake up in the morning and you think to yourself, today I have a feeling I'm going to be tempted in this area. What do you do? Immediately you pray. Pray that you enter not into temptation. Um, his, his, he prayed many different things and taught many different things about prayer. Prayer is critically important to Jesus, and he taught that it is for us well. There's an example that's not in Luke that I want to close with. It's not in Luke, but this is so important. After his transfiguration, Jesus came down the mountain to the disciples. 
And if you remember the transfiguration, he's up there with Peter, James, and John. The four of them go down the mountain. They come into the city, most likely it's Caesarea Philippi. And there's a crowd of people, and there's a debate going on, and there's a person who's demon-possessed, and Jesus' disciples could not cast out the demon. Well, Jesus immediately cast the demon out. And his disciples asked him, why? Why could they not cast out that demon? You know what he said? Remember what he said? This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Dear person sitting here, there is no spiritual success, no spiritually positive thing that goes on in your life that does not first start with prayer. Prayer is critically important to everything in your life and in mine and in our lives corporately. Your great parenting technique is not going to guarantee your kids follow Jesus Christ. It's God and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, isn't it? It's so many times we see in Scripture about how God gave someone success. God gave us a success. God helped us in this area. God did this. God did that. And all, it all comes about in prayer. So let me ask you, do you pray? Do you pray for spiritual success? Do you pray for people's salvations? You look and think, oh man, I don't know how that person will get saved. God's powerful and God's faithful. In Providence Bible Church, I pray that this church becomes a church that prays. We have, uh, we have the, 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 prayer, the mom's prayer meeting on, uh, mom's in prayer on Wednesday mornings, 8 o'clock. We have 8.45, we have a prayer right over here. We have a 6.30 prayer meeting a couple times a week. We have all kinds of opportunities to pray. And so we should be praying corporately. And I just pray that God will fill this place so that one of the things they say about Providence is that place is a house of prayer. And God will be pleased. Lord, I pray that as we embark on the study of Luke, we are going to be looking at the, the birth narratives and the infancy narratives in all these. But Lord, I pray that we will be drawn to glorify God. We'll be drawn to magnify God and that we will be drawn to just praise and glorify and be like Jesus Christ, be conformed to his image. And I also ask, Lord, that you will make Providence Bible Church a church that prays together. In Christ's name, amen.